I want to kind of uh, pick up where we left off. I'd like to make some ground here uh, today, this afternoon in this chapter. We'll go about 45 minutes and just cut it off at 2. So um, I know it's been a real busy week, and I, I do appreciate you all sticking around. Um, and I appreciate your faithfulness to be here through the meetings. It was real good. But um, I want to make some ground here as I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into, uh, I think we're going to be starting Revelation once we finish 1 Corinthians on Sunday nights, all right, and then uh, take a break once I finish book five of Psalms, um, I'm sorry, book two of Psalms, we'll be halfway through the book of Psalms, once I finish book two of Psalms, we'll take a break on Wednesday nights and switch to Second Corinthians, which um, is a very different pace than First Corinthians, it's really, really different, but it's a great book, and so I think it's the timing of it um, is perfect, in my opinion. And then we'll get right back into the Psalms once we go through First Corinthians, or Second Corinthians verse by verse teaching. We'll get back into preaching through the Psalms, and I'll try to keep running on that till we finish the book of Psalms. That's a lot. It's a huge book. But man, the Psalms are so good. And I've, I've enjoyed it, and I hope you have as well, but a little bit of a break hopefully will, will be, a, be a blessing. So, First Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse number 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray. Father, I love you this afternoon. I thank you, Lord, for this church. I thank you for this pulpit. Thank you for this book. Uh, Thank you for my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray now as we go through your book, God, that you would guide, that you would direct, that you'd be with my mind and my mouth, Lord. Uh, I'm sure that I say a lot of things that Um, Lord, are mistaken, but I don't want to, not when I'm teaching the Bible. I pray you'd help me not to be be off, God, but help me to be on point and uh, to be right with you and to be teaching your people your word the way you'd have it to be taught. And I ask you to do that, Father. If you can do something like that with a sinful man, that's a pretty miraculous thing. So we're looking to you. We're trusting you this afternoon. Teach us your book. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I was reading through my... uh, my, uh, uh, um, commentary this this morning, just kind of double checking and making sure, you know, that I, my mind's freshened up and all that stuff. And one thing that encouraged me a lot is uh, as, I was, as I was reading through that and looking at some of these verses. Um, obviously, reading Doctor Ruckman. Um, there's nobody else that I would read. Even if you write a commentary, I'm not reading it. Um, <laughs> sorry, um, I, I don't need to when I got Doctor Ruckman's. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I go by that. I, I use that to check my doctrine. So when I'm preaching through a book or I'm teaching through a book, I always read that chapter, Dr. Ruckman's commentary on that chapter, to make sure that doctrinally I'm seeing it the right way. And uh, so I was looking through that thing, and you know what I appreciate about him? Um, there, there was none like him. God's not replacing him. Nobody's rising up in his stead. It's over with him, right? Now, there's some men that he trained and left fingerprints on that God are now, God's now using those men the way God wants to use those men. But there's no replacement for him. And when it comes to teaching the Bible, there was nobody in the last hundred years that had it like he has it, and nobody will in the next hundred years. It's incredible. Um, some people may want it, but they don't have it. You know what I mean? They might even have his intellect, his IQ, but they just don't have it. It's a gift from God. And uh, so I'm reading through there, and I'm seeing what he has to say. And he said about some of these verses in here, he said, Now these are real tough, and I'm not sure what to make of it. <laughs> I can't figure all of it out. I'll give you what I got on it, but I don't understand all this. Ain't that a blessing? Now I know I'm talking to a true professional. Um, you know, I, we're talking to doctors a lot lately. You know what's really nice? 
It's really nice when you got a doctor that comes in and says, here's what we know and here's what we don't know. You're like, I like you. I can't stand anybody that thinks they have all the answers or thinks they get it all. Uh, there's a God bigger than you and I that wrote this book, and he wrote it the way he wrote it on purpose, and not every piece of it makes sense, but most of it makes more sense than you think it makes. So let's see if we can make some sense out of some of this as we're going through here. The Bible says in verse 20, we kind of covered this a little bit of an overlap from last week, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. All right, so the argument would be, well, people had uh, risen from the dead before Christ, right? He's the first one to rise from the dead and never die again. Does that make sense? So people in the Old Testament rose from the dead and in the Gospels rose from the dead, but Jesus Christ was the first one to rise from the dead and never die again. You say, well, what about Enoch? Enoch didn't die. So Christ is the first fruits from the dead. He's the first one that died never to die again, right? And he's become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, that's Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, right? We looked at this before and I showed you how the best commentary on your Bible is your Bible. When you're trying to figure something out, you use your Bible first and foremost to figure out what you don't understand. So verse 22 explains verse 21. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. See that? That's a clear explanation of verse 21. The first phrase for by man came death, comma. The first phrase of verse 22, for as in Adam all die, comma. The second phrase of verse 21, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. The second phrase of verse 22, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. See how that works? God gives you a best commentary on your Bible. It's your Bible. Keep your finger here in 1 Corinthians. Let me show you one of the best examples of this in John chapter 3. If you already know this, bear with me for a minute, but this will help some people that want to be a witness and aren't sure how and want to show people what it means to be saved. This is one of the best passages in the Bible that I use to show uh, an illustration of the best commentary on your Bible is your Bible, right? John chapter number 3, look at this, look at this passage. Look at verse number uh, 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Jesus Christ is speaking to Nicodemus. And as you know, Nicodemus believes in God. He believes in Jesus Christ. He knows that he's a teacher come from God. Uh, he believes the miracles that God does. So Nicodemus firmly believes in Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ to work miracles. Jesus Christ answers and said unto him in verse number 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is thinking, All right, so you're a miracle worker. And we know you're a miracle worker. So if I have to be born a second time, are you going to reincarnate me back into my mother's womb? Is that how this is going to work? Jesus answers in verse number 5, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, see the capital S, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So then they say, see, you've got to be baptized to be saved. Well, what is that water referring to? How do you know? You just go back and forth in mental gymnastics and they run to one verse to prove what they mean and you're running to another verse to prove it from your standpoint? Or you let the Bible be the commentary on the Bible. You let the Bible teach itself. Look at the next verse in verse 6. So he's explaining what he said in verse 5. In verse 5 he said, except a man be born of water. That's the first part. Look at the first part of verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. 
Look at the second part of verse 5. And of the Spirit. Look at the second part of verse 6. And that which is born of the capital S, Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, is small s, Spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. So in verse number 6, you've got a commentary explaining verse number 5 to you. So that clears it up. There's no question. He's not talking about baptism in water. He's talking about a physical birth. What are you in when you're in your mother's womb? It's amniotic fluid, right? It's water. So what happens when the water breaks? The baby's coming. Uh, We had four, we, that was actually not a we. It was like all her, but we had four (laughs) C-sections. It's bizarre the way us guys talk, ain't it? So they were all scheduled ahead of time. Well, with baby number two, um, I got, you know, you know, like the WWE or the clothesline a guy, you run by him and you hit him with your arm like that in the throat and he flips like that. There's a couple 360s and lands on the mat. That's all that stuff's fake. Okay. Yes, yes. If you love WWE, knock yourself out. That's whatever. I will. I'll leave you alone. But that stuff's all pretend. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. These guys are great actors and they're phenomenal athletes. They're in great shape, but they're not tough guys. All right. Now they could probably beat me up. I get that. But they're all acting. But I got clotheslined. And it wasn't an act. It was legit. So I know those guys are acting because what happened to me was not a joke. We're laying in bed at 5 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and I got a whack across the throat. We got to go. You know what happened? The water broke. The baby was coming. Right? That's born of the flesh. That is, that is a child's flesh in their mother's flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Now those two become one flesh. It's a separate entity. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about you and your heart and your spirit, trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, born once physically, die. Why? Because of Adam. For as in Adam all die. You are born a sinner to sinful parents. So if you're born once, you're going to die twice. You're going to die physically and you're going to die in the lake of fire eternally. But if you've been born twice, you must be born again. You were born physically, and then there was a day that you asked Jesus Christ into your heart to save your soul. Born twice, die once. See how the thing commentates itself? It's actually pretty simple. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you remember that concept that I just showed you, if you mark that down and don't forget that technique, right? Everything in life is technique. You understand that? Everything's technique. I mean, you can be taught how to tweak technique and get better at anything you do. That includes parenting, marriage, uh, mowing the lawn. Yeah. yeah, I mean, come on. Everything's technique. If you're a mechanic, it's technique. Everything you do in life is technique. If you learn that technique in studying your Bible, you'll begin to be able to make sense out of passages that are confusing you, and it's a very simple technique. That's what's happening in verses 21 and 22. Look at verse 23. But every man in his order... Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. So there's an order to things, and we talked about that last time. God has an order to these things. What I'm going to show you as we get into Revelation, so I'm going to keep moving through this passage this afternoon, but as we get into Revelation, I'm going to show you that there's three different groups. Uh, some people argue about when the rapture is going to take place, right? And they'll see a a pre-tribulation rapture, and then they see a mid-tribulation rapture, and there's some that believe a post-tribulation rapture. Well, if you don't know where they fit, you're going to be real confused. Do you know there's more than one? Yes. 
There's more than one resurrection in your Bible. And you got to understand that. It is literally like a garden. And we're going to see that as we go down through this passage. God, he's using a garden as an illustration. In a garden, you plant those seeds, right? It has to fall on the ground and die. And you water it. And then it has to start growing. As it grows, it begins to produce fruit. Well, there will be a first fruits in your garden as you're going through your garden. Every year, there's a first fruits. I've used the illustration of my parents' grapes. And man, there was always a first fruits of those grapes. You go out there and they start popping. You can see them when they first start coming, but they're not ready, right? And then you'll have some that are actually ready. They're the right color. But there's just a few. There's not a ton of them. That was the first resurrection. It's the first fruits. Then you have a main harvest. That's going to be the church age. We'll get into this in more detail later. That's when everything kind of comes into season and it's time to go out there and get at it, right? And now you get the vast majority of all the fruit comes in at that point. But then there's gleanings afterwards. So as you're going through in the main harvest and you're pl plucking all those grapes off and you're getting all that there is to get, that's great. That's when you get the bulk of it all. But if you go back a few weeks later, some of those that weren't quite ready yet are still coming in. That's the gleanings. The same thing is true when it comes to the raptures and the, res and, and the resurrections. You've got to be aware of that. And again, we'll get into that in more detail in time to come. Look at verse number 24. Uh, verse 23, but every man in his, own, in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming. Then cometh the end, when she, he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he, put, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So it shows you where the end comes. Look at verse 25, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The end... When he's talking about the end, it's the beginning of his reign. Then cometh the end. What's happening there? That's the beginning of the millennial reign. So that thing doesn't switch until that point. Look at verse number 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. You know that doesn't happen until after the end of the millennium? People are still dying during the millennial kingdom. Essentially, the beginning of the end is the beginning of his reign. I mean, that's a great rain, isn't it? I mean, there's no devil active. The earth is regenerated and rejuvenated and renewed and it's bringing forth in its strength. Do you know the ground is cursed that you eat from? That's why no matter what you do, no matter how clean and healthy you eat, how clean and healthy you live, you still get old. You still get sick and you're still going to die. There's nothing you can do to get around it. You know why? The ground's cursed. You know, it's a bizarre concept to me. The perfect millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, he rules with a rod of iron and he rejuvenates everything, man. Things are bringing forth fourfold, uh, 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 the full force of the earth is bringing forth like it should and people still wind up rebelling against God and against Jesus Christ during the millennial reign. You know what that shows you? That's that final dispensation that shows you that even if Satan himself is bound, your human nature is still a mess. You can't, you can't even blame the devil. Now, you do understand, and again, we'll get through this in more detail as we go through Revelation, so I want to keep moving this afternoon, but you do understand that you are not going to sin during the millennium. It's impossible. Ain't that a blessing? Can you imagine that? Impossible. It'll be impossible for me to ever think the wrong thought, have the wrong feeling. 
I mean, even be tempted with that. I won't even be tempted with it. I will have the mind of Christ and a body that is a perfect glorified body. And that is going to be an absolutely wonderful time. From what I understand of the millennium at this point, it is going to be a very active thing. I mean, I'm looking forward to it, man. We're going to be busy. We're going to be living our lives. We're going to be worshiping the Lord. We're going to be working. You know, it's important to understand the difference between work and labor. There's a big difference. Labor is a pain. Work is what God gave Adam and Eve to do in the garden before the fall. None of you really mind working. You just think you do. Actually, work will keep you sane. Work will make you happy. Work gives you a great feeling when you accomplish something, get something done. It's labor that you don't like. In spite of the fact that Jesus Christ is ruling and reigning, they're still going to be messing up. So it says in verse number 25, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. So he hasn't done that until the end of the millennium. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. That happens at the end of the millennium, the beginning of eternity. You do realize that he doesn't wipe away all tears. Again, we'll get into this in Revelation. He doesn't wipe away all tears until the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, that's a scary thought to me. And, I, and I'll guarantee you, your status in the millennium has to do with your efforts now. So, like, staying for the afternoon service when your couch is calling you. But you stayed instead. It's okay. I don't take it personal. It is, man. Mine is too. I stayed around for you. <laughs> Desire to depart and to be with my couch is you know, far greater, but it's more necessary for me to stay with me with you. You know what I mean? <laughs> Why? Because I'm not living for myself. I'm living for Jesus Christ. And so if I can do a little bit of something for him right now, that's going to pay off then. So whether he rewards me now or not, which we talked about this morning, he does reward you in the here and now. I mean, he does. Not as fast as you want to be rewarded, but he does reward you. But even if he doesn't, I'm looking for that millennium. I'm looking forward to that judgment seat of Christ. I'm, I'm looking not forward like I can't wait. I'm looking forward in like my spiritual view. That scares me. Verse 27, For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith, all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected, which did put all things under him. These are the passages where Dr. Ruckman was saying this stuff gets pretty tough. Verse 28, When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that hath put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Alright, so here's how you look at it. Look at verse 27. For he, God hath put all things under his feet, right? For he hath put all things under his feet, Jesus Christ's feet. God put all things under Jesus Christ's feet. Then there's the he again. But when he saith all things are put under him, that's God saying all things are under Jesus, it is manifested that he is expected, which did put all things under him. Yeah, thank you, ma'am. That couldn't have been said better. Now here's why, here's why it's so tough. What God is showing you is the Trinity. Dr. Ruckman teaches one thing about Jesus Christ in eternity future, and Clarence Larkin teaches something a little bit different. And Dr. Ruckman says, the only other viewpoint that I have to do you justice by giving you this possible viewpoint is Clarence Larkin's, let me give you Clarence Larkin's viewpoint, which I will not 
bog you down with, but I'll probably spend a little more time maybe laying some of it out when we go through Revelation a little better. But what he's saying is this. Jesus Christ came out from the Father, right? And God says, I'm going to exalt your name above every name. And then in eternity future, it looks like Jesus Christ who came out from the Father and stays separated from the Father throughout the millennial reign in eternity future goes back into the Father and God's all in all. The physical manifestation of Jesus Christ gets taken back up into the Trinity and there's God reigning over the whole thing. You say, explain that to me. I cannot. And I would not be so unfaithful to God and anybody who's ever tried to teach me anything to say that I can. And when somebody comes across to you like they can, write them off. What you're dealing with is the Trinity. What you're dealing with is the power of Almighty God. What you're dealing with is the Word that came out from the Father and goes back into the Father in eternity future. It's bizarre. You say, how does that happen? I don't know, but it makes more sense than anything else anybody's come up with. Of course it does. Verse 28, when he has subdued all things unto him, then shall the Son also himself, see it, be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. You see that? So Jesus Christ, God puts everything under him and put, gives him a name that's above every name, and then Jesus Christ continually shows submission to the Father and obedience to the Father, and in the end, God's all in all. So it looks like he goes right back into the Father in eternity future. You say, that's crazy. Yeah, I know. Explain it. If I could, I'd be God. It does require faith. And there's something here that goes above and beyond what any man yet's been able to make perfect sense out of because we haven't seen it. You understand that? I have not seen nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that put their trust in Him. Are you kidding me? No human eye has seen it, no human ear has heard it. No heart of any man has ever had it enter in. So you cannot imagine. You come up with your greatest imagination, the greatest imagination you can possibly have of what heaven would be like, the perfect place for you, the greatest imagination, and you missed it. Because it's not, according to Jesus Christ, it's not possible for you to comprehend how good it is where we're going. You literally cannot comprehend. It has never entered into the heart of man. No wonder when God Paul called Paul up to the third heaven, he said, I'm out of here. God said, no. He said, please. I mean, Paul was literally, the rest of Paul's life, he had a death wish. That's what made Paul so crazy. What, jail didn't bother him. Getting killed didn't bother him. You know, trying to survive a day and a night in the deeps didn't bother him. Snakes biting. Nothing bothered him because it was like, okay, good, I'm dying. <laughs> Can you imagine living like that? I mean, wouldn't that be great to just really just be like so ready to go to heaven, so confident in God, so confident in how great it is over there that nothing here bothers you whatsoever. God's going to wipe away all tears and all memory of it all. And having, having been able to have seen that, you would never operate the same way in this world again. He wanted so badly, like nothing fazed him. He wanted so badly to go home, but he's like, God has me here for you. So if that's what God wants, I'm staying here for your sake because I'm God's and I'm not my own, but I am ready to get over there. That's a great thing. You know why? Because this life is a veil of tears to steal one from Dr. Ruckman. 
That was the first time I heard that. I was a little kid. I can still see him. I can see him standing on the platform at Galilean. I was sitting down on the preacher's left-hand side, which would be the congregation's right-hand side of this sanctuary, about four or five rows back on that far left-hand side. And I can still see him standing up there. And I never forget when he said it. He was drawn. He had chalk on his hand. He turned around. He said, life is a veil of tears. And that veil of tears, it hit me. It sunk in. I was a little boy. I mean, elementary school. And I never forgot that life is a veil of tears. Just the word picture that he drew in my mind has stuck with me my entire life. Now, once you grapple with that for a little while, once you live long enough to feel that, to know what that means, you don't want to go to heaven. But the problem is you can't rush it. You're not right with God to, you know, tell God when that date is. You stick around. Why? Because God has a purpose for you being here. You just got to grab a hold of the fact that this is going to be over pretty quick and that in the meanwhile, while you're here, you're here for a purpose. And then when God gets you over there, do you know He's going to take away your memory of all the former things? Won't that be a day? I mean, not to remember... Any of my tears. You, you hear the preacher this week? He talked about God has your tears in a bottle. Man, if you didn't hear that one, you need to listen to that one. You needed that one bad. I'm telling you, you needed that one. He's got a shelf, and the Bible teaches God has all your tears in a bottle. He knows every single tear you've ever cried. He's got some kind of an angel or something there catching those tears and taking them to heaven, and they're up there before God. Man, that's how much he cares. And he's watching what you'll do with those tears now. And that's going to have a huge difference in eternity for you, for His glory, for your good. And then the day comes when He wipes them all away and all memory of it. That would be a great day. I mean, no wonder Paul kind of got a little bit, you know, suicidal. (laughs) No wonder he wanted to go so bad. He got it. There's no point in sticking around here anymore other than to please God. Verse number 29 Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Here's a verse that the Mormons will use about baptism. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? All right, so they try to tell you that this is talking about, you know, baptism for the dead, like you're baptized for somebody that already died. That's nowhere in the context. Has absolutely nothing to do with that. Uh, Roman Catholic doctrine gets into you know prayers for the dead and, and, and trying to get people to pay, pay money to get people out of purgatory and all that stuff. That's a bunch of tomfoolery. That's not what it's talking about. That, t- that thing's talking about baptism as a type. I was dead in trespasses and sins, buried, and walking in newness of life. We're talking about the resurrection, right? He's talking about death and the resurrection. Since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. It's baptism as a type. That's why we take them just like Jesus Christ did, just like John the Baptist did. We take them. Jesus Christ was baptized. We put them under the water and we pull them up out of the water. That's the only type of biblical baptism as an ordination or as as an event that we do as a church. That's the only biblical baptism there is. So that baptism for the dead, that's talking about my, I was dead in trespasses and sins. That's put under Christ, and I'm alive now in newness of life. This thing isn't talking about you getting baptized for somebody else that died. You have to read that into the passage. Where's the commentary on that? Show me. Because I showed you how the Bible will commentate on itself, right? I showed you how the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. 
And I've showed you how we're supposed to compare spiritual things with spiritual. Here a little, there a little, line upon line, precept upon precept, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's very clear how to study our Bibles, right? Mm -hmm. Study that passage and show me where that's talking about you getting dunked because your loved one died. The context is talking about a spiritual death. It has nothing to do with you being baptized for somebody else's physical death. Look at verse number 30. And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? If there's no resurrection, he says, why am I putting my life on the line? If we're just dead and gone and there's nothing else, why would I give my life to what I'm giving my life to? I mean, honestly, that's how, that's how I genuinely feel about the ministry. Now, I'm going to say this right. I want to say it the right way because I do not want to give the wrong impression. I said earlier in the announcements uh, about um, like not wanting a break. Do you know what I mean? Remember I said that? Like it's, it's part of, it's not what I do, it's what I am. And, and pastor in a church, it feels like an extended family. It really does. I don't, I don't want to break from my wife and kids, right? I want to take them with me when I go on vacation. I'm looking forward to spending a little time with them after the meeting down there. I really want to spend some time with my family. I, enjoy, I don't need a break from them. They're my family, right? The ministry is very much the same way. But listen, everything that we have, 100% of everything that we have, is based on one thing. As, as I'm your pastor, and this is our church family, and we're church family, right? Yes. You know all we have? We have Jesus Christ. This entire relationship is built on one thing. <laughs> it's built on the Lord Jesus, a risen Savior. It's built on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's built on this book. If Jesus ain't real and the resurrection ain't real and the Bible ain't real, you and I have nothing. Oh, that hurts. It shouldn't hurt. <laughs> In a room this size and all the different backgrounds and different hobbies and different personality types, how many of you really think that we'd be all that close if it wasn't for our Savior? What would we have? How many of you that are over 60 and female really want to talk to me about Brazilian jiu-jitsu? Right? Okay, female, period. My wife's like, I've listened to years and years of jiu-jitsu and I love you and that's why I listen to it. You, know? <laughs> you understand what I'm trying to say? Our common denominator, our bond, our bond is the Lord Jesus Christ and that book in front of you and that bond is deep and strong and it overrides everything else. It bonds us in ways we'd have never bonded together without that book and that Savior and the Spirit of God and the resurrection and the Bible and eternity to come. That's what we, why what we have is so permanent and so strong and it's going to last because it's bigger than me and you. Well, if there's no resurrection, what's the point? I love what I do. I love being a pastor because God's put it in me. God's called me to do it. And I, and I love it. It's an outflow of who I am, how I'm created. I could never be happy doing anything else in the world. Literally, I would never be. A, I got a guy that's my age. I'm reading a book that he wrote about his life. He's literally lived the fairy tale life if you're a little boy wired the way I was wired. He's lived a fairy tale life. He, he got more people out when, when, uh, when we pulled out of Afghanistan, was it, the wrong way, and, and it was all a big debacle, right? He personally got more people out of Afghanistan than the United States government did. 
ex-special forces guy the whole nine yards. His, his, his business that he's running now, which is all over the world, engaging in different stuff. He's coming and going. At, I mean, like, he's living a, 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 just a little boy's childish dream. And he won't live long if he keeps it up. I mean, sooner or later, he's going to die by the sword. But, I mean, go out in a blaze of glory before you get too old. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, he's got the coolest life, man. It's like a movie. I would be miserable. I know for a fact. I know for a fact. This has really settled into me more recently in my life. I would be miserable living what I think would be my perfect dream. Because God has put in me and wired me to do what I'm doing right now. And this is the only thing I want to do with my life because this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You feel me? You understand what I'm saying? You feel me? All right, that being said, if the resurrection wasn't true, I would quit the ministry so fast. If I didn't believe the Bible was true, I would quit so fast because there is literally no point to this and this would be the most miserable thing a man could possibly do with his life without the Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of that book. It would be the most miserable thing you could possibly do. You're going to spend your life bearing other people's burdens and rejoicing with those that rejoice and weeping with those that weep and loving people that aren't always lovable and controlling yourself and biting your tongue. And You're going to do all that without the Lord? <laughs> You're going to adapt who you are and who you naturally are to be what God wants you to be because God takes weak things to put them in positions so that God can use them and that the thing God's using knows that it was God and everybody else watching the thing that God uses to do a job knows it's God. Nothing about this is naturally me. It's God. I, I'm with Paul. I mean, why stand we in jeopardy? If, if there's no resurrection, why are we doing this? Why take a chance on going to jail someday? In this generation, taking a chance on going to jail? For sure. Because I will not quit preaching the Bible. I don't care if it becomes hate speech. I don't care what they say. I don't care if they say you're doing psychological damage to people when you tell them that sin is sin. I don't care. Sin is sin. And if you're living in sin, you're wicked. You need to get right with God, and God will judge you for it. And if you don't get saved, God will send you to hell. That's why I sent Jesus Christ. I'll preach it. And I don't care if they say a rapture is emotionally traumatic for people. There's an imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ and you better live like it's, he's coming today and plan like you're going to die of old age. Do you understand? It's coming. That's what the Bible teaches. That's my job. Why stand in jeopardy if it's not real? Leave me alone. Let me go get a job somewhere and let me try to conquer the world. Get all I want to get. Buy me a Harley and everything else I can buy and just kind of live it up, man. Verse 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Boy, that's a tough one. This is not talking about a physical death. Not any more than the verse before it was talking about a physical baptism for the dead. Look at Romans chapter 6, please. Go back one book to the left, even though I just went to the right. Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Ain't that interesting? You know what happened? When you got saved, you were completely immersed into Jesus Christ. 
His deadness to sin was given to you. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. No water anywhere in the passage. It's not talking about getting dunked in water. It's talking about a spiritual occurrence that took place. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. That's why when we do it in water, it's a picture. That explains the picture right there of what actually happened spiritually. This is what happened spiritually. Verse 5, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also in the likeness of his we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So what happened? Your old man was crucified with Christ on the cross of Calvary. That is your standing as a Christian. Your standing as a Christian is seated at the right hand of the Father. All right? It's in heavenly places. All right, look at verse 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. So if you're dead, guess what? Christ died on the cross. If you're in him, you're dead, you're free from sin. So the difference between you and a lost person is you don't have to sin. Guess what a lost person has to do? A lost person has to sin. They don't have a choice. Their flesh is in charge. They don't have the ability within them to rise above it. But as a Christian, you don't have to. You just choose to. Because in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing, and you'll continue to struggle with that till you die. I don't believe in the sinless perfection stuff. Verse 8, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Now watch. Verse 11, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You know what you've got to remember when sin knocks on your door and tempts you? You've got to say, I'm dead to that. I don't have to do that anymore. I got Jesus Christ. And whichever direction you yield, whichever direction you lean, is the direction you'll go. So the reason some Christians, they say, fall into sin, you didn't fall into sin. You weren't just like doing right, walking along, and all of a sudden, boom! That, that, that's an excuse. You were yielding that direction. You were leaning that direction long before you ever committed the act. You know what a Christian's supposed to do? You're supposed to lean into Jesus Christ. If you'll yield that direction, then you won't go the other direction. But you're still in the flesh, and the flesh is always wanting to pull you that direction. So it's a matter of which way you lean, that's the way you're going to go. So you have to reckon yourself to be dead indeed unto sin. Go to Colossians chapter number 3. Colossians chapter number 3, look at verse 5. Colossians 3, 5. Mortify therefore, well that, what's that? Uh, well, mortician. Mortify means to kill, put to sleep. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. You know what you got to do? You got to die to yourself. You got to die to sin. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15, please. 
He says, he says in verse number 31, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die how often? You mean every day of your life? Every single day of your life, you have to die to yourself. If you don't die to yourself every day, you will sin. You ever wake up in the morning just not feeling good? Just a cranky jerk? You know what the problem is? You. You don't feel good. So you start out your day being rude to everybody else around you. You know what you got to do right out of the gate when you're like that? You got to die to how you feel. You cannot let the way you feel control the way you act. I don't feel good. Okay, that's an excuse. I just wasn't feeling like it. I'm going through a hard time. I don't know. Okay, listen, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to the way you feel. You have to die to sin. You've got to die to that temptation. A dead man doesn't care. I will guarantee you one thing for sure. If you come by my coffin someday and you look in that coffin and I'm laying there and you say, man, he never got very tall, did he? He sure is a short guy. I don't know why he had to yell so much when he's preaching. Did you hear how many things he said that was wrong? I mean, man, he didn't even know his Bible. It's just crazy how dumb he was. Look at those ears. What was he thinking? Why is he wearing that tie? Look at what they did to his makeup. I'm not going to let him put any makeup on me. <laughs> you want to know something? I won't care. Do you know why? I'll be dead. <laughs> it's not rocket science. It just literally will not matter what I owe to me, what you say, what you think, how much you criticize me. Even if your criticisms are right, it ain't going to matter I'm not there. Do you know what we Christians need to do? We need to die to ourselves. If you were dead to yourself, you know you wouldn't care nearly as much about the things you care about. That won't bother you a bit. That temptation shows up. You know why you care about that temptation or you start going towards that temptation? Because you love you. You love you. You know why it bothers you when somebody insults you or somebody hurts your feelings or somebody says something about you or somebody doesn't shake your hand or whatever else? Because you love you. It's sin. You know what you got to do? You got to die to every bit of that. Verse number 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So what he's saying is, listen, man, I, I, after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Well, you can go read and see what he went through in Ephesus. It was people attacking him. And he said, if after the manner of men, right, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. You know what he was saying? Men act just like animals. And who knows, maybe that's a possibility of that thing actually being some kind of beasts in them, people using them, people to fight against the work God was doing. But either way, you get the point. Men act just like animals. He said, if after the manner of men, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it me? What's the point in doing battle and standing up and fighting against all this foolishness and struggling with these people and all the resistance that comes to the gospel and the resistance that comes to the work and the struggles between you and the principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world that I definitely guarantee you you deal with on some level or another. And some people deal with it more than other people do. But we all deal with it. And sometimes it gets intense and then sometimes it slows down. That's all part of the ebb and flow of the battle. That's just the way it is. What's the point in all this struggle if you ain't going to rise from the dead? There's no point at all. 
He says, if that's the case, if the dead rise not, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there is no eternity, if you're not rising from the dead, if there's no resurrection, just party it up, man. Just party it up. Eat and drink. Just go get smashed. Just get high. I mean, just whatever happens, happens. Drive home drunk, whatever. If you die, you die. I mean, what difference does it make? If you kill somebody, I mean, what difference does that make? I mean, it's just we don't go anywhere anyways. It's just fate, you know. It's just what's supposed to be, whatever. Just have a good time. But thank God that's not the case. He says in verse number 33, Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. You see that? Mom and Dad, let me tell you something. I don't care how much you think your kid's a good kid. Look at their friends. If you see your kid gravitating toward a certain group of people, that's exactly what's going on in your kid's heart. That is who they are. And it doesn't work to say, oh, I want your kids to hang around with my kids because you've got really good kids and I want your kids to rub off on my kids. No. Why don't you get a backbone, mama and daddy, and you do your job. Don't ask my kids to do your job, first of all. Secondly, I won't sacrifice my kids to hopefully help your kids or take a chance on your kid pulling my kid down because God says, don't be deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. You better watch out what you're listening to. There's lots of podcasts out there you can listen to while you're driving around. And a lot of those podcasts, gentlemen, will be right along the lines of something you're interested in. It'll be hunting or fishing or sports or MMA or football or whatever else. But you got a bunch of men of Sodom sitting on there making their jokes and their comments in between discussing what it is you like. What it is you want to listen to. Trust me. I could listen all day long to, 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 to analysis of, of technique and of, you know, fights. Styles make fights, you know. Man, there's so much that goes into it and it just intrigues me like you wouldn't believe. But I can't listen to most of the stuff. Because of what they're going to be saying in between. Talking about what I'm really interested in. Don't be deceived. Evil community. Lot vexed his righteous soul from day to day with the filthy conversation of the men of Sodom. Nothing about what Lot was hearing did Lot enjoy. That's what hit me. This week. Like it never hit me before. Lot wasn't sitting there like, oh, this is great conversation. It said he was vexed. And God said he had a righteous soul. So Lot's living in Sodom, trying himself to be right and do right. Must have been. His family didn't even know because they were so overrun by Sodom when he came in and tried to take a stand for what was actually going on in his heart. You don't know, in my heart, in his heart, he really was, I'm, I'm really a good person. In my, I really want to, in his heart, he had some way he felt about God. Abraham had made a difference in his life. It said he was vexed from day to day and God said a righteous soul. That's a bizarre statement for me in an Old Testament context. Now, there's different ways to look at it, and I know all that. But listen, that's a bizarre way to look at it when God says he vexed his righteous soul from day to day. In hearing and seeing the filthy conversation of the men of Sodom. You better be careful what you're listening to, Mom and Dad. You don't want your kids to sit around in those conversations, right? At the lunch table, you want them to learn to separate from that stuff. What are you listening to? What are you looking at? See, when I was a kid, you used to have to turn on the, the radio, and there's an AM and an FM station. 
And you used to have to go to the certain FM stations to find the talk shows in the morning, and they were crude and crass and disgusting, and they did a bunch of you know, dirty talk and all the rest of that stuff. It was nothing like what you can pull up on your phone nowadays. I mean, it wasn't even close 30 years ago. It wasn't even close to how horrible it is now. You know what God said? Evil communications corrupt good manners. It doesn't work the other way. You come in for an hour a week. I mean, why does he preach for an hour? Because I can't undo all the damage that's been done all week in an hour. We'll finish with this next verse and pick it up in verse number 35 uh, next week. It says in verse 34, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's telling the church, you need to wake up to doing right. Awake to righteousness. Too much of us just sleep on the job when it comes to doing right. God don't want a church sleeping. Awake to righteousness. And, and what? And sin not. I told you already, you have a choice now that you're saved. The circumcision made without hands, the Spirit of God that dwells in you, you can choose to follow your flesh or follow God's Spirit. He'll show you what's right and what's wrong. You don't even need a verse for everything. That sounds pretty horrible, right? You don't need a verse for everything. Sometimes all you need to know is it don't feel right. That's all you need to know. It don't feel right. You better be super careful, some of you. I don't know why I'm saying this one. You better be super careful, some of you, especially young you, you men. You better be real careful about helping out some, some woman who's struggling. Well, she's having a hard time in her marriage. Well, what are you doing helping her? Well, you know, I'm trying to witness to her. Witness to somebody else. Knucklehead. Why, why, why ain't she coming to church? We, we figured out a long time ago how to figure out who really wants help and who doesn't. Pastor, can I talk to you? Sure. Hey, Grace, come on. Oh, well, you know, well, get out of here then. What do you have to say to me that my wife can't hear? If my wife can't hear it, I can't hear it. You understand? You better be careful. I, that wasn't in my notes, but that's free. You better be careful. Awake to righteousness and sin not. Separate from this stuff. Get away from the filthy communications. Make your choice to lean the right direction. Why? For some have not the knowledge of God. There are lost people out there. And they're watching your life. You know why a lot of Christians can't witness with any power? Because they're witnessing over a beer. They're sitting there at the bar with a Coke. Well, I don't want to run them off. I want to reach them. So I'm, going to get a, I'm just going to get a Coke and sit at the bar. And Yeah. They, and, they, and they laugh at you and they mock you and they think you're a nut. I had a meeting with a guy recently and we had a great time together and a nice conversation and, and had lunch together. He's asking me tons and tons and tons and tons of questions about the Bible. Brought somebody else with him. They were both just hammering me with questions about the Bible and religion and all that stuff. We went out in the parking lot and he tested me. The other person got in their car and left and he tested me in the parking lot. He said, I'd like to do this again sometime. I said, I would too, man. I enjoyed it. He said, yeah, that'd be great. He said, I was thinking maybe we could do it over a beer. But and he stopped and looked at me. And I said, not with me, you ain't. He said, yeah, I didn't think so. Now, how in the world did he come up with that? We didn't talk about alcohol one time. 
Where, where did he get that from? About my age. Maybe, maybe I think he's about, about 45, 46 years old. He was testing me. He was literally, we were heading towards his car and I was heading towards mine. I'd like to do this again sometime. I said, yeah, me too, man. We were kind of moseying. He said, I was thinking maybe we could do it over beer. And I said, not with me, you ain't. Just like that, I laughed. And he said, I figured you'd say that. If I'd have said, yeah, man, that'd be great. He'd have been done. Now, how do they know that? Because all the Christians drink. And everybody knows Jesus turned the water to wine. How did he know that? His denomination, all the religious leaders drink, and they give everybody in the church a drink every week. How did he know that? Ain't that scary? You better watch it. Because some don't have the knowledge of God. And he said, I speak that to your shame. I don't believe in lifestyle evangelism at the expense of a verbal witness. That was a movement when I was a kid was lifestyle evangelism. And what they were doing is saying, don't give people tracts, don't preach. It was the contemporary movement of the day. Don't give people tracts, don't preach, street preach, don't knock on doors, don't be an outward witness, just show them by your life. Well, that's hogwash, okay? But I do believe that those two put together properly is extremely powerful. And when people watch you, they ought to say there's something about you that's different. I like it when my neighbors show up and start kind of poking questions. They see you going to church all the time. They watch you in, around the house. They watch your kids. They see your life and they start, your kids are different than other girls their age. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty good. You know what the fear is? You know what the, you know what the threat is? I am always in this flesh and it's always trying to pull me to do something wrong. And they're watching. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have the knowledge, not in the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. How your co-workers view you. How your neighbors view you. How do your family, friends view you. Do you know some of you are going to do a lot more preaching to your lost family members by your life than you're ever going to do with your mouth. What all your verbal preaching can't get done your walk with Jesus Christ will accomplish. But you've got to knock off the sin. And ain't no, well, we're all in the flesh. You know, you mean that is in my flesh. Well, no good thing. Is that an excuse? Or is that a fact? To make you aware of the enemy so that you can avoid it. That's the point. That's the teaching on that. Whichever way you lean is the way you're going to go. All right, let's go ahead. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. We'll pick it up here next time.